In northeastern Nigeria, where the terrorist group Boko Haram is active, gender-based violence is common. When women go into the forest to gather firewood for cooking, they risk being attacked or kidnapped. This is an important story, but it's not the whole story. In 2021, journalist Nia Oyeji wrote an article for the International Center for Investigative Reporting that focused on a solution to the problem. A nonprofit had distributed fuel-efficient stoves that ran on agricultural waste. Using biofuel instead of wood reduced the number of trips that women took into the forest and thus reduced gender-based violence. That story is an example of a practice called Solutions Journalism. My guest today, journalist and author David Bornstein, is the CEO and co-founder of the Solutions Journalism Network, which promotes reporting the whole story, not just the problem, but the efforts to solve it. David, welcome to Making Peace Visible. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Jamil, for having me. To begin with, David, help us understand what is Solutions Journalism? Yeah, solutions journalism is really just reporting that looks at people who are trying to respond to problems um, and what we can learn from their efforts, whether they're failing or succeeding. It, mm-hmm. it tries to look at efforts to respond to problems that are producing uh, effective results uh, that can show evidence that they're successful, at least partially successful, and also tries to surface insights or teachable lessons from the work on the ground so that society can learn from what's working, but also from from what's not working. How would you describe key characteristics of a solutions journalism story? Yeah, the stories are, they're, they're characterized by the fact that they are primarily focused on a response to a problem rather than defining a problem itself or mobilizing outrage or compassion about the effects of a problem. They, um, they get into the how-to um, really the details and how the response works, like what makes it distinctive, what's different from the way the problem is typically uh, being addressed. And it looks for evidence that this response is worthy of attention, that it's working, it's producing a differential result, it has something to teach society. And it also looks at limitations. There's no perfect solution. Every effort to solve a problem has strengths and limitations, whether they're financial or political or what have you. Some are more scalable than others. So good solutions journalism really identifies the limitations as well. Um, in a nutshell, it's journalism for learning. It's, it's a way of um, advancing accountability in society, not just by showing people what's broken or what's corrupt, but by showing people what's possible and often what's possible that's not happening as often as it could be happening. So it creates pressure for reform based on possibilities that are available, uh, but very often aren't being pursued. You know, some people accuse it of being just good news, but it's not good news. I mean, it's it's beyond that. It's, uh, you know, can you give me a, a, a good example of a solution journalism approach to a story? I, I wrote a column at the New York Times for many years, co-wrote it with Tina Rosenberg called Fixes, where every week we looked at a response to a social problem. I did quite a number of columns on uh, on child trauma. It's an important area. It's an area that's undercovered. And I found, you know, I probably ended up finding like 10 or 15 different really interesting and in some cases quite successful approaches to helping children with trauma. So I wrote about these things. I described how they worked. Now, 
that's not necessarily a good news story. What I was finding were what we call positive deviants. We were finding examples in the United States, which has, you know, you know, 3,000 counties, more than 3,000 counties, you can find particular places that are doing smarter things. There are always going to be examples of places that are doing something smarter. So in this case, I found a story um, in, in Missouri about a place that had integrated trauma-informed care into the Head Start programs um, around the city, and it was really showing a difference. Now, that's in some ways, it's good news that, we, that there are better ways to help children right. with trauma. But at the same time, this is still only happening in a few places. There's not that many places in the United States or around the world that are using the available knowledge we have in order to help children with trauma. So is that a good news story? It's a story that shows a possibility, but at the same time, it's an underutilized possibility. It's only happening in two or three or five percent of the cases where it's warranted, where it's needed. So I wouldn't call that good news. I would call that hey, everybody, let's wake up. We can do better. And that's really ultimately what it's doing. Yeah, so it's in, in a sense, it's a wake-up call to, I mean, you use the phrase positive deviance, and that's what you're looking for. You're looking for those uh, situations where a good idea yields better results than, than average. Yeah, and that's, really, that's the case. For almost any major problem, that exists in the world. There are going to be places that are outperforming others. There are going to be places that are doing dramatically better than most of the places. That's just right. the way statistics works. There's always positive outliers on the on the right side of the curve, and then there's always negative deviants on the left side of the curve who are doing way worse than the average. Journalism typically says we're supposed to focus on the negative deviants, the worst mm -hmm. actors in order to mobilize outrage, in order to catch the bad guys. Journalism can also focus on the best actors, the people who are producing the better results. When you bring together outrage and learning, because you get the knowledge from the positive deviants, that's really, those are the two ingredients you need for social change. You need to have energy, outrage, you need people to be activated, but at the same time, you need better models, you need methods that actually produce better results. And that's what solutions journalism is all about. It's about looking with rigor, supported by evidence, for better approaches to, to problems that, that are very widespread in most cases. So in effect, you're helping people uh, harness the outrage towards a, a, a constructive solution. A hundred percent. I mean, can you imagine reading a story? Like there are one of the biggest problems in, or one of the highest rates or, or causes of death in, in hospitals around the world, or in the United States especially, is sepsis. You know, it kills a lot of people. It's a very, very fast-moving, dangerous infection. Um, there are a subset of hospitals in the United States, out of the 5,000-odd hospitals, um, that handle this problem really well, much better than the others. And then there's 90 or 95% that are not nearly as good. Can you imagine if your kid went to one of the hospitals that didn't handle this problem well, and you knew that another hospital could have potentially caught it and saved right. your child? I mean, imagine the outrage. Okay, so, so solution journalism should mobilize anger and outrage around the question, why aren't we doing this everywhere if this really produces a better result? In the right. education system, you see it around, do the kids get good education? Do the kids graduate? In the peace-building world, you can probably find many models that are much more effective at reducing or depolarizing conflict than other models are they being applied? Are we using the knowledge we have effectively? 
And, you know, we live in a world where 8 billion people are now wired on on information networks. Yes. We, Solutions Journalism is really about cross-pollinating the knowledge as quickly as possible so that we don't run into situations where where people suffer because they just didn't know that they could have done something better. Yes. I mean, I really want to congratulate you on the work the Solutions Journalism Network has done in changing the way many journalists and, and media organizations approach their reporting. I mean, when I looked at the statistics uh, on your story tracker, 14,300 stories produced by 6,000 journalists and 1,800 news outlets from 189 countries. That's an impressive record. Can you talk a little bit about how the network works? Sure thing, yeah. And by the way, that's only a fraction. That's all hand discovered. <laughs> when we get AI tools to be able to discover solutions journalism um, automatically, I suspect we're going to find a lot more. Basically, the way the network has worked historically, we're, we're just coming upon our 10th anniversary, has been first to legitimize the idea. There's been a heavy resistance in journalism to the basic concept that journalists should even be reporting on responses to problems, that we're not in the business of picking winners. We shouldn't be looking for people because if we who are solving, trying to solve problems, because if we write about them, we'll essentially be advocates. We'll be um, doing PR for nonprofits or for governments. So that was always the belief that mm -hmm. we couldn't do rigorous reporting about responses without falling into advocacy. So we've been able to show that that's Frankly, that's not true. That's really just a silly argument, frankly. You can look at many, many, many places around the world, from the BBC to the New York Times to NPR in the United States to many, many local news organizations that we have tracked in our database that do terrific reporting that rigorously interrogates efforts to solve problems. But it's taken us a long time to overcome journalists' um, suspicions that, they're, that, 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 that this will be good news or puffery or any of those those things. We've trained thousands of journalists, um, close to 30,000 journalists have participated in a workshop. Um, we have online resources that close to 40,000 journalists have accessed. We, we have worked directly with over 600 news organizations. And now many of those news organizations have been in contact with other news organizations, which is how the, the model has spread. We have journalism partnerships with um, many journalism schools. We have about 50 in the United States that are teaching solutions journalism at some form. Either they have a full course or a full module in a course, or in some cases, a center that's devoted to it. I sort of see the flip side of solutions journalism as promoting media literacy, in a sense. I mean, educating better listeners and viewers. We, we, we love that. We don't essentially do the direct media literacy training. But one of the things that, that we do try to do a lot with our social media and through partnerships is just help audience members understand that they have more power over their news consumption choices. They don't mm -hmm. have to be doom scrolling on Twitter until two in the morning, looking at the worst headlines and reading about the worst thing that politicians did or said, right. or just paying attention to these are very important issues, the war in Ukraine, you know, global warming, climate change, political dysfunction in Brazil or India or United States or whatever. These are obviously important issues. But if you spend, if you only spend your time focusing on just the problems and the crises, for, for, for one thing, you will shut down. News disengagement right. 
is on the rise. The news avoidance, which is tracked by the Reuters Institute, just keeps increasing. And it's because people just can't handle that the news is really just kind of like, it's like a smoke detector that doesn't stop beeping. And eventually you just take out the battery, you know? That's a great metaphor. But uh, Solutions Journalism Network has sponsored a considerable amount of research on how solutions journalism can positively engage news consumers who, like you said, there's a lot of evidence they're fed up with the news. What does that research tell you or tell us about the impact on civic engagement? And how are these results measured or quantified? Yeah, sure. And by the way, just just to clarify, we've sponsored a few studies. We've participated in a few studies. Most of the research that's been done on solutions journalism or -hmm. the European counterpart, which is called constructive journalism, we've had nothing to do with. We have sometimes provided people with lists of stories or we've made contacts. But the research has been conducted by independent academics for the most part. Um, And there's there's uh, an academic... Um, researcher at the University of Georgia named Kaiser Lowe. He has a, a, a web page where he lists all the research and it's about a, something like 100 studies in, in that neighborhood. I would say that the, you know, there, there are a few themes that run through the studies. It definitely boosts uh, a sense of, of efficacy and agency. People who get stories that show them that there are possibilities and show how people are responding to problems feel more empowered. They feel like, oh, and not just personally empowered, there's a kind of vicarious agency, just knowing that other people are doing smarter things and that you're part of a society where people are figuring out uh, solutions to hard problems makes you feel like you want to be more invested in that society to begin with. So it so it leads to more civic engagement. Um, mm-hmm. there's, there's research that shows that people spend more time with solution stories than they do with non-solution stories on the same subject. There's been some research that tries to compare A to B, meaning education stories or health stories, so that they're trying to control for for the issue itself. Um, So it boosts engagement. There's some research that suggests it boosts trust, but that's a more complicated thing. And there's quite a lot of anecdotal evidence that it helps news organizations bring in new sources of revenues that in fact, they can make a stronger argument to their community saying, can you please subscribe, support, sponsor, be a member? Um, The journalism that we are giving you is helping our community to become a better community. And you can point to specific stories. We did a series that looks at how we can rebuild our economy. We did a series of stories about how we can better handle the mental health issues of our teenagers or how we could respond better to more recurrent flooding as a result of of climate, climate change. And those appeals have been shown to be quite successful in many cases. One thing that's very clear is that we share an interest in transforming the way news is reported. Um, your solutions journalism is very broad. I mean, it really can be applied to any, almost any topic, like you say, you know, democracy, climate change, homelessness, mental health, anything. One category that we're especially interested in is how solutions journalism as a method can be applied to the way journalists report on peace and conflict. The, the first thing, when you're interested in any issue and you want to come at it from a solutions journalism lens or you think that you ought to, and, and the, que- the question is, are there interesting, effective, smart things or potentially the things that appear to be smart that are people are doing to reduce conflict that are depolarizing conversations, that are bringing people together in ways that seem to be showing results. 
that are worth investigating? That's the first thing. The simplest way to think of that question is, is anyone doing better against this problem? Are there any teachers out there that we should be looking at their models, their policies, their workshops, whatever they're doing? Um, mm -hmm. And if the answer is yes, or very likely, then it's a good candidate for solutions journalism. And that's when a journalist would typically look at some of the research, get involved with people in the field. Who are the people who really understand emerging solutions in peace building? Were there mm -hmm. people like yourself who are deeply immersed in the topic? There are foundations that, that may be funding these things. Often the program officers really understand um, the issues well. They've often looked at a hundred different proposals and they've decided to fund 10 of them. So, but they have a good sense of what, at least what they think is working. You can speak to researchers. What, what is the available research that works in peace building or reduction of conflict or depolarizing narratives? There's lots of research on, on different methods that go back to the mediation efforts over, you know, decades now. And so those are really, that's really, those are the, the key questions. And then when you get into to reporting on the issues, we call these stories, you know, how done it's, it's, it's not just how enough. Right. Yeah. It's not just enough to say, you know, this organization does these workshops and bring these people together who have historically had very violent conflict and the workshops are very successful and people come out, you know, come away a week later, shaking hands with each other and, and agreeing to work together. Now that's sort of anecdotal and all that. You'd want to look a little deeper and say, did this really lead to anything? Is there anything substantial on the ground that you can point to or is suggestive? And if it's mm -hmm. too soon to say, you can still report on that and say, well, we'll return six months later or a year later to see if anything came out of this initiative. And, and I think around, around peace building, the other thing is you can get sort of paralyzed when you look at some of these geopolitical conflicts that lead to war or civil war. I mean, you know, they're entrenched, they're huge vested financial interests, they're driven by oil or minerals in many cases or by sure. very, very old um, old sort of et ethnic tensions and rivalries. So if you look at it from that lens, like I remember speaking to Lara Satrakian, who, who, who used to yes, run I know her. Yeah. Um, Syria deeply, and we talked about solutions journalism in Syria um, during, you know, in the Civil War. And, and I was saying, I don't know if there are solutions. You know, this is right now, this is, this is a very, very complex geopolitical issue that I don't know if journalists can find solutions. And she started telling me, she said, no, there are people on the ground who are, you know, in the midst of this crisis, they're still making the water potable. They're still making sure that girls can get educated. They're still mm -hmm. keeping the economy going. They're still, in some cases, trying to mediate at a local level so that communities can still function, even though the power players are unwilling to talk to each other. And so when you break down these very large problems into smaller slices, you can often find earlier stage things or smaller scale things that are quite interesting and useful as well to report on, even if the larger uh, context, larger issue um, doesn't seem to have a solution journalism approach that can be taken. Yeah. You know, I mean, actually, we've spoken to some, you know, in our podcast, we've spoken to some wonderful journalists who've been working in Syria and Iran and Colombia uh, and Ireland, you know, who've talked about these issues. I mean, um, you know, one thing they consistently uh, complain about, I guess you'd say, is uh, they, they don't have time to cover the, the nuance. You know, the, it is important to tell the whole story. And the whole story is 
like you say, both the problem and and the solutions. And um, but you know, a lot of network news and news magazine news or, news organizations just don't give them the sufficient time. Um, you know, how do you cover nuance when you've got a deadline and a tight framework? That's really one of the biggest constraints that journalists face in our network. They see stories that are worth covering. And the editorial guideline is, you know, you cover the big issues. You cover, you know, the last battle, the last, the explosion, what just went on. You have to be covering these flashpoint events. Um, There's a couple of problems with that. One is we now know that if you continually cover a crisis through the lens of the most destabilizing of the worst parts of that crisis, people just tune out. People stop paying attention. They're not only doing that with the Ukraine war now, they've been doing it consistently for years with the climate crisis. Just it's too, mm-hmm. it's too depressing. So one thing is you do need to think about human engagement when you're doing journalism. You can't just right. say, you know, just pay attention, just eat your vegetables kind of thing. That's one right. thing. The other thing is that um, one of the things that drives violent conflict and that drives the polarization that we see politically in many countries in the United States today and Brazil is this belief that the people on the other side are not fully human. That's something that, you know, mm. Amanda Ripley has written about in High Conflict. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. When you can successfully dehumanize people on the other side of the, the argument or the conflict, um, it gives you license to do horrible things. One of the things that solutions journalism can do very well is it creates a journalistic rationale for covering people through the lens of just their ordinary competence. Here's a bunch of people who did something smart to keep a school going. Here's a bunch of people who did something smart to make sure that this group of people still has access to, you know, economic livelihood or what have you, or water. When you show people through the lens of sort of ordinary competent problem solving, it mobilizes a lot of empathy for them. It's, it's hard to empathize with victims. The research shows very difficult to empathize with people if they're portrayed as sort of victims who have no agency. We, we mm-hmm. find it very difficult to connect to that. I'm saying we, I mean people who are often have a lot of control because they're in rich Western countries in the United States or Europe or what have you, and um, they actually vote and their governments will often determine things based on their votes. So in order to engage people to care, you have to be able to show people through a lens that they can be empathized with. We also don't empathize with superheroes. We can't empathize <laughs> with heroes because they're they're sort of we discount them. We're, I'm not I'm not a a great person like uh, you know Muhammad Yunus or something like that or whatever. So so it's very important to depict people and show their um, you know their agency, their conscientiousness, their humanity through journalism. And very often the journalism that only focuses on the flashpoints and conflicts turns people into cliches that we cannot really connect with. And that actually does the opposite of what the journalist wants to do. It doesn't create engagement. It doesn't create empathy. It doesn't create connection. With, with solutions journalism, you can find really important stories and also strengthen that, that, that connective tissue to the people that you're writing about. Yeah, because, I mean, psychologists say that humans are kind of wired to be more interested in the drama of conflict. And your research shows that people are actively interested in solutions as well. But that's tough, you know, when you're trying to convince these profit-oriented uh, news organizations uh, to shift their, 
you know, their editorial point of view to accept a wider variety of stories like this. People have, you know, people definitely outrage and, you know, horrific stories definitely draw a lot of clicks. Um, But sustained attention, time on page, those things we are seeing correlate with stories that can engage people, you know, through, um, you know, it's kind of like when you think about when you think about a lot of movies or if you think about, you know, what very what often happens in a movie is a character um, begins to want something, wants to do something, wants to achieve something. And in this case, these are real world characters. They want peace. They want security. They want education for their children. They want housing. I mean, these are real things. And they have these desires for these things. And then those desires are thwarted by the economy, by corporations, by actors in conflict on the other side, by by violence. Um, What the research on storytelling shows you is that when you lean into the stories, when you start to care, it's by showing people struggling against hard challenges that that the audience often leans into the stories and begins to really, in a sense, root for the people who are trying to do something hard and worthwhile um, to succeed. I mean, you want them to succeed. If people are trying to figure out how to solve a big problem and it's clear, you know, how to, it could be anything. It could be like getting rid of lead paint in, in inner city Cleveland, or it could be like reforming the way Houston handles its homeless population. These are two examples of things that were successful. The, the evidence and the research from, from news organizations shows that these stories do very, very well because you can mm. begin to lean in and there's there's something that you can um, watch, learn from, and hope for as well. Right. There was a phrase that popped up somewhere in the reading I did: "Less tunnel and more light." And uh, I love that phrase. I mean, it's uh, kind of captures a little bit about what you guys are all about. If you have any other insights you want to share about uh, covering peace and conflict, I'd love to hear them. You know, there are particular kinds of stories, like one that I have come across, an organization called I Am Your Protector, has identified the particular power of stories that show a person from the other group, the group that your group hates, um, protecting someone from your group. You know, so this would be, you know, the example of... of um, uh, the Syrian refugee in Germany who jumped into a river and saved German, yes. German citizen. So a bunch of people were watching. You know, th- this person was very brave. It's it's a particularly powerful story to sh- to sh- to humanize a group of people who the the media and you know and interested parties uh, wanted to humanize for often for political reasons. So I would say those stories. I am your protector. They've been shown to be very very powerful stories. I think in the same ways, when you can show people um, being humane, being courageous, Mm -hmm. but not in like the huge, not in the capital C courageous, being sort of ordinarily courageous and taking care of their communities in doing competent, caring, compassionate, humane things. If we think that the world is full of the stock characters that journalism portrays, who tend to be, you know, all of these people in journalism is sort of cast of characters of sort of corrupt politicians or self-interested business people or overly rich, you know, celebrities or what have you. I mean, we have these characters and they're not very impressive as a whole. And journalism mm-hmm. knows they're not impressive. They drive clicks. But if we believe that this 1% or 2% of the world 
is really who we are. Why, why would we vote? Why would we want to pay our taxes? Why would we want to get involved in society? I mean, it really is presenting the world as if it's full of these, these people who are, who are journalism is sort of calling out. So we need a language to show who we really are. And sometimes there are people just in bureaucracies where it's very hard to move things along that are somehow managing to get things through, policies through, money through, permission, you know, getting legal, you know, legal things through. People that, that are working very creatively in these really stuck bureaucracies, there are these unsung heroes all around the world. And those stories are fantastic. And typically, they, these are people who keep a low profile. But there are, you know, there are so many of these people who are doing, who are doing this really smart work. And it's a, it is an investigative job to find them. They don't come to you. Mm -hmm. These are not stories that are flashing on the police scanner or that are calling for your attention. These are stories you have to talk to people, say, who's really making a difference here? And how are they making a difference? And you need to really hunt for these stories. They're slow-growing stories. They're often quite hidden. And most journalists, frankly, have never been interested in telling them. And it's a real, it's a real loss for all of us. It certainly is. And I hope we'll both continue to shine a light on the kinds of people that are doing this kind of work, the journalists who are covering stories about uh, the unsung heroes and the solutions. David, thank you very much. That's a pleasure. You can learn more about Solutions Journalism and the Solutions Journalism Network at solutionsjournalism.org. Try using their story tracker tool to explore news from around the world written in this way. Follow David Bornstein on Twitter at dnbornstein. We're also on Twitter at War Stories Peace. If you haven't heard our interview with journalist and author Amanda Ripley, it makes a great companion to this episode. After two decades as a journalist, Amanda Ripley has focused her reporting on solutions to seemingly intractable conflicts around the country and around the world. That episode is called Rethinking the Way We Cover Conflict, and there's a link to it in our show notes. If you learned something from this episode, please tell a friend, or better yet, send them a link. Word of mouth is the best way for us to grow our audience. Making Peace Visible is produced by Andrea Moraskin. The associate producer is Faith McClure. Peter Agus is the creative director of the War Stories, Peace Stories project, and I'm Jamil Simon. Thanks for listening.